We'll open up uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 to 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, welcome to New AM at Hunter Bible Church. My name's Scott, and if I haven't met you yet, I would genuinely love to chat to you after the formal part of the service today. Uh, but one of the things you need to know about me is that I am really into Disney princess movies. And that is because my four-year-old is really into Disney princess movies, which means I actually spend a lot of time picking them apart and analysing them and thinking about them. And so it means for about the next 10 years, you're going to have to put up with illustrations from Disney from me. But a lot of them, a lot of them really do tap into our culture. And more and more, as I've kind of watched them, a lot of them pick up the theme that our culture preaches to us about our identity. Answering the question, who are you? So, for example, let's, I've done Frozen before. So I'm not going to pick on Frozen today, but let's go Moana, or if you're Bogan, it's Moana. So Moana, she's a girl who grows up as a Pacific Islander, and they have this culture of traditions and rules, particularly imposed by her father. So her father's expectations is that one day Moana will grow up to be the leader in his place, replace him as the leader of her people and there's this one big rule, they don't go past the reef, all right? You're not to break that rule. She's got to stay on the island and take on her father and, and tribe's expectations to be the leader. But there's this tension for Moana, all right? You see it in one of the first songs in, uh, in Moana, where I've cut this up, I'm going to sing a little bit, but it hurts me that I can't sing at all, but anyway... Maybe I can be the perfect daughter... All right, so she's got the expectation to live up to her father's expectation. I know everybody on this island has a role on this island, so maybe I can roll with mine. Should I go with the traditional kind of social expectations that are placed on me? I'll be satisfied if I play along, but the voice inside and see, sings a different song. What is wrong with me? All right, so there's this voice inside of her. All right, thank you, thank you. We're going to be talking about gifting in church, and music is not one of my gifts. <laughs> There's this tension of, do I, do I follow the social expectations, my father expectations, the traditional identity that society wants to impose on me, or do I follow my heart? Do I listen to that inner voice inside of me? And, and with this tension, what is wrong with me going on when I can't work this out? 
So then along comes Grandma Tala, the voice of reason in the movie Moana, and she says, once you know what you like, well, that's, you're there then. Once you work out whatever makes you happy, Moana, that's when you've made it. Mind what your father says, but <laughs> listen to the voice inside. If the voice starts to whisper, telling you to go, then Moana, that voice inside, is who you are. And so Moana, she listens to the voice inside of her. She breaks the rules, she disobeys her father, along with a number of Disney characters, might I add. Ariel, the little mermaid, disobeys King Triton. Mulan disobeys her father. Nemo disobeys her, her, his father. Simba in The Lion King disobeys Mufasa. It's tough being a dad in Disney. And she goes off to pursue her true calling, listening to that voice inside. And at the climax of the movie, she sings this song that's titled, I Am Moana. Right? She's found her true identity because she followed her heart. She went on the adventure. She broke the rules. She went into the world. And she's found her true self. And in doing that, the resolution of the movie is that she actually saves the world by being true to herself. She saves her island sorry for ruining it, and then her tribe, what's more, her tribe now affirm her for who she really is, and they change their identity to be voyagers and explorers of the sea. They're liberated. She's progressed her culture and liberated it from the old traditional oppressive ways. And this is what our culture preaches to us. No one can tell you who you are, right? Particularly your dads, all right? No one can tell you who you are, your parents, societal norms, traditions, rules, expectations. You've got to break those rules. Go find your identity by exploring the world because you'll only be truly happy when your calling and your identity, they meet, when you're really true to yourself, which places this pressure, right, to have to go and find your identity and to go and look for it in the world and to find it and try out all these different things to try and be somebody and to prove that you're somebody. And then Moana and our culture preaches that if you do find yourself, there's this contradiction that's preached here. On the one hand, I don't need you to tell me who I am or what to do, but then once I am true to myself and I find out who my identity is, then I do need you to affirm who I am. Because the movie ends with her whole tribe affirming her for who she now is. If the movie had have ended and her father still said, I don't affirm you, well, that would have been harmful of him and evil of him. And so there's this tension, do you need external affirmation or not to be true to yourself? Does it really come from within or does it come from... It? And so this, the modern identity, it leaves us conflicted, unsettled, uncertain... But friends, Christianity is completely different. (laughs) Completely different. If you are a Christian, you've been given a new identity, not one that you deserve, but you've been given it from completely outside of yourself, from the God of this universe. And as we open up these first nine verses of 1 Corinthians today, This is exactly what Paul wants to remind the Corinthians and offer us of. Who are we in Christ? And so what we're going to do as we unpack these verses, we're going to think a little bit first about the background and who were the Corinthians and what was going on in the city and the church. 
And then in light of that, we'll think, why does Paul start here with these first nine verses? And then we're going to spend most of the talk really digging into our identity as Christians, who we are in Christ. So first of all, who are the Corinthians? Well, Corinth was a Roman city located towards the bottom of Greece. You can go visit it today, it's still there. And it sat on this narrow strip of land just next door to it that was about six to eight kilometres wide, which was this kind of crisscross of trade routes. And across the six to eight kilometres wide gap of land, they had built this paved road that boats would come from one side of the peninsula and they'd go on these carts and then those carts would drag the boats six to eight kilometres across the gap, which meant it cut off days of your journey and it meant Corinth was this really wealthy city full of trade and it was diverse. There's Romans, there's Jews, there's Greeks, there's rich, there's poor. We think it's hard to know this for certain. We think it probably had a similar population to Newey and Lake Mac today, give or take 100,000. It was the capital city of the region, bigger than Athens was at the time. And we know from historical evidence that the city was also known not just for the wealth and trade, but also for the intellects. It was a city of minds and of wisdom and of philosophy. And the city, it had a bit of a reputation for being a place of extravagance and self-indulgence. There were stacks of temples and gods that you could go and worship in Corinth. One of the, the gods that's worth noting or goddess is Aphrodite, who was the god for sex and fertility. And she was the patron of prostitutes, of which Corinth had a reputation for having the best prostitutes, the most prostitutes, the most expensive prostitutes in Greece. So that's first century Corinth, a wealthy city full of diversity, a smorgasbord of religion, and hyped up on sexuality and a place of philosophy and wisdom. So then how did Christianity come into Corinth? Well, 33 AD, in the, in, after Jesus died and he rose back to life, and then when a year, within a year of that, Paul, who wrote this letter, was converted from Judaism and from persecuting the church, and he became a Christian, which we can read about in Acts 9. And then somewhere between 48 to 51 AD, so, you know, 17, 19 years after Jesus has died and risen, Paul, on his second missionary journey, he comes to Corinth preaching that Jesus is Lord. Put your trust in him. We read about that in Acts 18. And so what happens in Acts 18, he first goes to the Jewish synagogue and preaches there, but he gets opposed. So he literally goes, and this is amazing, he plants the church right next door to the synagogue. And then it just blows up. The synagogue leader, Crispus, who he refers down in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians in verse 14, he was the Jewish synagogue leader when Paul went there. He became a Christian. And his whole household was baptised. And then the Jews, they thought, well, the way we're going to keep opposing Paul, we'll try and shut him down, we'll go to the pro-counsellor, the Roman ruler of the area, Gallio, and we'll get him to shut Paul down. But Gallio didn't want a bar of it. So then in that kind of um, that court, the crowd then leave, and then they decided to beat up the new synagogue leader, Sosthenes. I'm not sure why they beat him up, but Sosthenes is referenced in... 1 verse 1, Paul's writing this letter 
with his brother Sosthenes. So the new synagogue leader seems to have become a Christian as well and is now co-working with Paul in the gospel. So don't put anyone over that synagogue if you don't want them to be a Christian. But then Paul left Corinth. He stayed there for about 18 months. And then soon after, he wrote a missing letter, right, that we don't have in existence today that we know of, that, but we know he wrote that from 1 Corinthians 5. And he wrote that to encourage and talk about things with the church. We know particularly he talked about how to live and uh, what a Christian sexuality looked like in light of the gospel. And then in response to that letter, the Corinthians wrote back to Paul and probably as well the people who brought that letter, perhaps they were from Chloe's household, also gave him an update about what was going on in the church. And so some of the things that they would have, that we can tell they would have updated Paul about, because Paul throughout 1 Corinthians, he goes, this has been reported. Or now for the matters you wrote about, let me respond to those, this letter that you sent me. So Paul's addressing these reports and this letter from the Corinthians. And so some of the things we know that were going on in Corinth, we know that Paul's authority seems to have been questioned because he was a less eloquent preacher and some divisions were forming between the leaders in Corinth. There was some pretty significant sexual immorality going on and not just sleeping with prostitutes, although he does address that, but in chapter 5, we see a bloke who was sleeping with his father's wife. And the church, rather than going to the guy and saying, mate, this isn't how to live in light of the gospel, they were patting him on the back, saying, well done, mate, this is awesome. They were proud about it. In chapters 11 to 14, he addresses their gatherings, so like what we're doing this morning, and, and he says in 11.17, in, the, in these things, I've actually got no praise for you because your gatherings, they do more harm than good. So when you get together, it'd be better if you didn't get together because when you get together, it's worse. And what's going on there? They're they're celebrating the Lord's Supper and people who were more wealthy would bring food and drink for the Lord's Supper, but then they'd hog it for all themselves. It's different to how we do the Lord's Supper. We do like a mini Lord's Supper, but you can imagine someone just kind of hoarding all the little cups to themselves. That's what was going on here. And so people were going away, they're supposed to be sharing this meal, people who were less well off would go away hungry and the wealthy would get drunk at church. They come and get on it at church. And so there's disorder, it's a mess, right? And in response to that, Paul writes what we now call 1 Corinthians, even though it's at least his second letter to them. And he writes it from Ephesus in 53 AD. Now, if this was the church you had planted and you heard all of what was going on and you're responding to their their letter again, they're misunderstanding how to live in light of the gospel again, how do you think you would start your letter to this church? Have a look at how Paul starts it. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, I know who I am. And our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, 
grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. How can he say that? How can he say to this, this church, I mean, our church has problems. We're, we're all forgiven sinners. All churches have problems. But, but this is pretty intense what's going on in Corinth. How can he say that they're sanctified, that they're holy, that I always thank God for you and the way that he's gifted you? Now, some people reckon that Paul's being sarcastic here in light of the rest of the letter. Others say he's just a, you know, a bit of a pastoral technique, a bit of feedback. You butter them up first and then lay the punches afterwards. That's, he's being genuine here. He really means this. So why does he start here? The Corinthians had lost sight of who they were in Christ. They were divided. There were those in the church who thought because they were wiser or more gifted that they were more superior Christians. And there were those who felt they were less gifted and therefore inferior and maybe they didn't even belong to the church They'd completely lost sight of the gospel and who they were. And they'd started following the world and who the world wanted them to be. So despite their sin, despite their problems, Paul wants to take them back to the foundation of who they are in Christ. And it's like 18 times in these nine verses that Paul refers to God the Father and God the Son in Jesus Christ. He wants to lift their eyes outside of themselves, outside of the world. And rather than them having a worldly perspective of their identity, he wants to give them God's perspective of who they are by his grace alone. And the reason he starts here, it's because when you truly remember who you are in Christ, and it's something as Christians we need to keep coming back to and back to again, that's when transformation takes place. That's when we want to live for God's purposes. That's when he gives us a new identity. We remember who we are and how we're to live in light of who we are by his grace alone. And so he comes back here because he wants to remind them of his grace and their firm foundation in Jesus Christ. So let's look at their identity in Christ. And this is our identity in Christ if you're a Christian as well. And we're going to look at three kind of big, big ideas throughout this, or multiple ideas, but brought, cut it up into three chunks verses one to three, verses four to seven, and then verses eight to nine. So, verses one to three, let's have a look at the amazing blessings of who we are as Christians. Look, just look at verse two, actually. We'll just unpack verse two for a while. To the church of God in Corinth, you are the church of God in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul says, Christians, you are the church of God in Corinth to these guys. Now the word church there just means gathering. Church isn't a building, it's the gathered people of God who he owns. No human leader is over God's church. It's the church of God that happens to meet in Corinth. And Paul says, you're the church of God in Corinth, but you're together, you're in partnership with everyone, everywhere, who call on the name of Jesus, who worship in Jesus. 
See, Paul's wanting to lift them out of themselves and to see that in Christ we're part of something bigger, bigger than ourselves. And in this verse, Paul, he's, he's drawing on these themes that come up in the Old Testament, particularly around Exodus 19, where when God had saved his people out of slavery from Egypt and the people of God, they had gathered, Deuteronomy 4.10 talks about them gathering around Mount Sinai and God speaks to his people and he says, in light of the grace I've already shown you, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, in response to that, the Israelites didn't obey God. And so that wasn't ultimately fulfilled throughout the Old Testament. But then Jesus came along as the perfect Israelite in complete obedience to God and he fulfilled this And so when we are found to be in Jesus, in Christ, this is fulfilled in us as well. There's such rich meaning in those two words that Paul talks about here in verse 2, to be in Christ. It means that if you're a Christian, you're so joined into Jesus, like a limb is joined to a body and relies on the body for life, we're so bound to Jesus and his destiny that by his grace through his death and resurrection, This is being fulfilled in us through him. And so God is right now at this very moment gathering a people to himself out of all the nations. He was doing it in Corinth. He's doing it in Newey and Lake Mac. HBC right now, we are a local expression of this God's cosmic plan of redemption. And so what we're doing at this very moment is an expression of, of that identity that we have in Christ. It's an expression of God's plan of redemption. We get to come here and call on the name of Jesus as Christians are doing all over the world. And we're going to get to do this for all eternity as we all gather around the throne of God and worship him. And you can see why he's doing this. He's wanting to bring unity into their division He's wanting to lift their eyes out of their individualism and their self-centeredness. He's saying, you're part of something bigger. Remember who you are. Now, I reckon, as I was preparing this this week, I reckon this is one of the blessings that we actually get of being part of a bigger church, is that we actually do get reminded of this week in and week out. So if you were to walk out in a kid's church today, Well, not today because it's holidays. That ruins the illustration a bit. But if it wasn't holidays, you would see people from New EPM, Josh, Jen, Sam and Hannah, people you may have never met who are serving our kids and teaching them about Jesus. You see people from from Lake Mac, Nick, Sophia, Uni Church, Grace, Gemma, Emily, and that's, you know, 50%, not even of the team to mention we would get to see that we're part of something larger. A gathering that is going to go on for all eternity. And then if you went to Lake Mac or New EPM Kids Church, then people in this room would be there, serving the kids. Craig, Fiona, Isabella, Sarah, Sophia, Stephanie, Miriam, Kim, Jonah, James, Timothy, Ruth, Tesla. And we get that, 
we get that real remembrance of what it is to be part of something bigger in a larger church. Now, that doesn't make us better. In fact, we've got to be more guarded against pride if, as size goes. But what a blessing to be reminded that we're part of something that all Christians everywhere are calling on the name of Lord Jesus as, as God gathers his people to himself. And then Paul calls them, he says, remember who you are, you are sanctified in Christ. Now most Christians, when they hear the word sanctification, they think about growth and progress in the Christian life. But when the Bible speaks of sanctification, it is something that is already done when you believe in Jesus, in his death and resurrection. There's maybe two places, if you turn your Bible upside down and squint a little bit, that might be progressive, but I don't think they are. Sanctification, it's something that is done for you in Jesus Christ, which means it doesn't matter how bad you think you've been, it doesn't matter how sinful or how bad your past has been, when you come to Christ, you are sanctified. You've been given a new identity. And to be sanctified means that you've been washed. You've been cleansed. You are holy. You are cleansed from all your sins and you are now God's treasured possession. That is how God sees you and isn't that amazing? Now, I, to do an illustration, I was like, oh, I'll get a treasured possession from around my house, so I realised I don't have any treasured possessions. But um, this comes close to something that, it's a, a medal that I didn't actually earn, all right? I was part of a support team that worked with wheelchair rugby athletes that went to Denmark in 2014 and won world champs. Um, and I got to be part of that. I didn't earn this. I can't play sport well either. I'm not gifted in that area either. But when I look at this medal, it reminds me of the relationships that were formed then. It, there's a great fondness of, you know, we, I can remember stories of I had to drive a minibus around with wheelchair athletes in it and the, the manual was on the right-hand side, the gear stick was on the right-hand side and I was really unco and we nearly crashed. And There's great stories and fondness when I, and I look at this and I haven't been able to Marie Kondo it right and get rid of it because I do remember it and I look on it with fondness and a great love and affection. Now that's a really silly illustration. <laughs> For how much more do you reckon or can you fathom how God looks at you because you're in Jesus Christ? Holy. Cleansed from sin. For all eternity. Not because of how good you are but because you've been washed by the blood of Christ. Friends, remember who you are. Because to be sanctified also means that you're now distinct. You're God's treasured possession. You're, you're a tool for his purpose now. You've been set apart out of the world and you're now God's children. And that is why Paul reminds the Corinthians Yes, you're sanctified, but you're also called to be holy. And what he's saying here is just be who you already are. Live out the identity that you already have. You're already washed, you're already clean, you've turned away from sin. 
You live for God now. He's at the center of your life. You want to bring glory to him in everything you do. You're called to live out who you are. So don't live for this world. (laughs) That's not who you are anymore. As Christians, it means we take sin seriously. We turn away from it. We're different to this world in a good way. And Christians, you don't have to go through the uncertainty now of having to go and try and find your identity out in the world. You don't have the pressure of trying to be somebody. You don't have the crushing expectations of needing affirmation from your culture because you've been affirmed by the God of the universe through Jesus Christ. That is who you are in Christ. You've been given a new identity outside of yourself. And that should well up within us a great joy and an inexpressible joy, as 1 Peter talks about it, and a thanksgiving. This is the foundation we want to keep coming back to. This is who you already are in Christ. So that's the first section. The next ones get shorter and shorter. Verse 4 to 7, have a look at the second blessing that comes out of our identity in Christ. In verse 4 to 7, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Paul basically says here, you couldn't get it any better as a Christian. (laughs) You've been enriched in every way. You lack nothing when it comes to God as your generous giver, by his grace. But this, this kind of introduction that Paul gives in this letter, it's a little bit of a headline for what's coming later in the letter. And it's interesting to note there in verse 5 the two specific gifts that he mentions that he'll go to talk on about later in regards to both speech and knowledge in some detail. So, And I think, again, he's genuinely affirming and giving thanks God always for the way that God has gifted this church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 12, he mentions these, again, as positive gifts that God has given to his church. Paul genuinely thanks God for these gifts. But the Corinthians, remember, they lived in a city that was known for philosophy and wisdom and intellect and speeches. And, and it seems the church in Corinth, what had happened, a problem here that Paul's starting to address is that they'd overvalued these gifts. They'd taken on the culture around them to some, some extent, that having these gifts, the effect it was having, if you had these gifts, then that impacted your identity. You're a better Christian. But if you didn't have those gifts... Well, you weren't as good a Christian. These gifts had started to impact who they were. So in chapters 1 to 4, particularly around the gift of speech, it seems the Christians had started questioning Paul and his authority because he wasn't as eloquent. He didn't seem as outwardly gifted in the gift of speech. And that's probably a fair assessment because when we read about Paul in Acts 20, you might remember the story He's in Troas and he's preaching for hours. And there's a guy called Eutychus who's on a window ledge who falls off the window ledge asleep uh, and dies. And then Paul raises him back to life. 
it's probably a fair assessment. We're going to spend a couple of years digging into the depth of Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians. But the risk in their thinking and ours was that, oh, well, to see someone saved, you had to be a great, eloquent preacher. And so if you were, if you had that gift, well, then you could go and see people saved. If you didn't, well, you suck. (laughs) Too bad. And Paul says in verse 17, I didn't come in eloquence and wisdom, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the message that is the power of God. It's the content of the gospel, not the gifts that carry the power to save people. Paul goes on in 4.20 to say, For the kingdom of God, it's not a matter of talk, it's the same word of speech, but of power. And so what's going on? The Corinthians cared more about the preacher and their gifting and their charisma, it's the same word for gift, charisma, than the content of the message itself. And they're doing a similar thing with knowledge, which Paul addresses in chapters 8 to 10. So just, we're not going to go into detail on this, but he says now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge, the gift of knowledge, it puffs up while love builds up. He's going, knowing good doctrine and being right, that's important, but not when you're being unloving to your brothers and sisters, which is what they were doing. They cared more about being right than thinking about how to build up and edify their brothers and sisters. And so there's this pattern going on in Corinth where the gifts themselves had become more important than what they were supposed to be used for in terms of glorifying God, building up the church, loving their brothers and sisters. The, the gifts, the charisma... Had, be, had defined their identity as Christians. They valued the competency, so to speak, more than the character and what it looked like to live for God. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, then it's worthless. I am nothing because I'm separated from my identity in Christ when I put the gifts over his purposes for my life. And so Paul, right from the beginning of this letter, he says he genuinely thanks God for the gifts. The gifts are good, but don't separate it from the purpose of God. Don't build your identity on the gifts. Build your identity on Jesus' death and resurrection, the message of the cross. Now, we are a gifted church. And it's not uncommon, I reckon, for me to hear what partly what was going on in, in Corinth, for, for Christians to say here, I don't think I'm gifted. I don't, I don't feel like I'm good enough to serve. And on one hand... That's the point. We're, we're all like, welcome to the club if you feel inadequate and incompetent to be part of God's mission. <laughs> but on the other hand, if you think you're not gifted, you're wrong. <laughs> that might be your, your worldly perspective or from inside your own heart. It's not God's perspective of you. If you're a Christian, then God has gifted 
each one of us as we urgently await Jesus' return. And being gifted, is, it's not the end in itself. Don't be defined by them. But God empowers each one of us by his grace together in the body of Christ to use these gifts for his purposes as we await Jesus' return. We are a gifted church because of God's grace, not because of who we are. And so, friends, God wants you to use the gifts that he's given you by his grace. He wants you to be empowered by the Spirit to serve him, to preach the gospel, to love your brother and sister, to build up the church. But don't be defined by those gifts. Keep coming back to who you are in Christ by his grace. And I reckon as preparing this, another, another thing that comes out of this that I was challenged by here, when was the last time that you did thank God for your brothers and sisters in the way that God has gifted them? Now, wouldn't it be great, and I think we do do this a lot, but wouldn't it be great if we had that culture of just, and maybe we won't see it, maybe it's in our private prayer times where we are just giving thanks for our brothers and sisters that God has gifted us with, that we're better together, and the unity and diversity that we have, because when we do that, and not just at HBC, but of Christians at other churches, to be able to thank God for the gifts that he's given them to be on his mission, that'll cultivate a great unity, won't it? It'll combat division. And so Paul says, in the past, you were given God's grace, you were sanctified, you're called to be holy, You've been enriched in every way, gifted. You lack nothing. You can't get it better as a Christian. And in the present, we're amply supplied with these gifts of grace as we urgently await Jesus' return. And then look about what he says, who we are in the future in verses 8 to 9. God will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless, on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the future, you will be kept blameless. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, this is who you will be, blameless, sanctified, no guilt, because you're in Jesus Christ. And God will keep you, he will persevere you to that end. Now, how can that be, some people would say. How can that be with my past? How can that be with what's going on for me in my life right now? You don't know the sin that's going on now. Repent. But remember that he's writing to the Corinthians that were junked up with sin. And the only way that they could persevere blameless to the end is verse 9. God is faithful. It's not you. It's his grace who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Wow. He's called you to serve him. He's called you to be in Jesus. And his calling, it will not let you down because God is faithful. He will hold you for all eternity. Friends, stop chasing your identity if you're doing it in things of this world or from within yourself. That'll leave you unsettled confused, proud and insecure and if you're here today and you're not a Christian 
You can't get it better than being found in Jesus Christ. It is so good to be reminded of who we are. Christians, remember who you are in Christ and be who you already are by the grace of God. You're gifted. You're the church of God. You're sanctified. You're enriched. You lack nothing. And you will be kept firm to the end all because of God's grace for the sake of his glory. Let me pray that we'll continue to remember who we are and live out that identity. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we read these nine verses and we can't even fathom things from your perspective sometimes. Lord, it's amazing that even though we've sinned and we've all turned our back on you and we've all rebelled, that we've all got past history and hurts and pains, that in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, in the power of the gospel, when we put our trust in you and we're found in Jesus, you wash us, you cleanse us from our sin, you make us holy and you call us to live out our new identities in Jesus Christ. And then you continue to pour out your grace on us as you gift us and empower us and enrich us to serve you for your purposes. And you give us a church family to do that in, Lord. (laughs) We want to give thanks to you for who we are. We want to give thanks for each other in the way that you've gifted our church and the Christians we know beyond these walls. And we ask, Lord, that in light of eternity, in light of your return, that we continue to live out the identities that we already have by your grace for the sake of your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.